Hey everybody, it's Brian. The work hours for a professional working in athletics can fluctuate. That is why the University of Cincinnati Online designed a Master of Sports Administration program that is both flexible and 100% online. Connect and build relationships with other students, alumni working in athletics, and their experienced staff. The best part? You can graduate in as little as one year. If you're unsure about going back to school, UC Online has a team of student success coordinators ready to guide you from start to graduation. Reach out and learn more about UC Online today by visiting online.uc.edu and searching for the Master in Sports Administration program. I talk to donors all the time who say they love hiring student athletes because they have all of those different X factors and they know that they're not just going to quit when it gets hard. But if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not a student athlete, how am I ever supposed to get in? We hire so many of our student workers. I think the bigger story is just networking is not an instant result. This is the Work in Sports Podcast. Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com, Brian Clapp. Pretty exciting time here at WorkinSports.com. We've just published our second annual State of Sports Hiring Report, and it's bonkers. Bonkers? Did I just use the word bonkers? Anyway, it's a lot of information about what's happening in the sports industry right now based on surveys we ran with sports employers and sports job seekers. A real finger on the pulse of what's happening. I will link to it in the show notes. We'll share it with you wherever you want to download it and learn more, but it's really cool. I'm going to share with you some takeaways here just to kind of whet your appetite a little bit, and then we'll get into today's guest. These are just a couple things that stood out to me. There's a lot more in this, trust me. First off, in last year's report, we were sharing that COVID shutdowns negatively impacted 1.3 million sports jobs. Put that in perspective for a second. We all know COVID had an impact. We all know we're getting past it. But 1.3 million sports jobs were negatively impacted by COVID. Holy crap, that's eye-opening. This year, what we're talking about is the good news, the growth. In, In 2022, from January 1st to June 1st, only the first six months of the year, Work in Sports and iHire Fitness and Rec, those are our two sports-related properties, promoted 123,642 job postings, which is a drastic increase in available opportunities. I'm not comparing one-to-one numbers here. We're saying 1.3 million jobs were impacted in some way, shape, or form, and that we've posted over 123,000. My point here is that that 123,000 is way up from previous years over the same time frame. So that's really good news to show growth. We're not talking about contraction. We're talking about growth, and that's really positive. Another cool set of data. We asked participants which job search activity they had done in the previous year. And 41% of our respondents said they applied for jobs even though they didn't meet requirements. Now, I'm bringing this out because it's a negative data point. This is one of the highest responses was that they, people were applying to jobs that they didn't meet the requirements for. Colleen Scholes from the Philadelphia Eagles, Malin Vu from the Cleveland Guardians, other talent acquisition reps we've had on this show will tell you, oh yeah, we post a job, we get 500, 600 applicants. And you out there listening are like, how am I ever going to be the one? This is too competitive. I'll never make it, blah, blah, blah. Well, if 41% of our respondents to our survey are saying they're applying for a job they don't have the qualifications for, that number is actually probably a lot higher than that because this is what people are admitting on the survey, right? I've been told by talent acquisition people that sometimes 80 to 85% of the incoming applicants for a job opening 
are neither qualified nor interested for the job. And that's a big problem in our industry. People are wishing and hoping and just throwing out their resume because they want to work for the Eagles or they want to work for the Guardians or they want to work for the Dallas Cowboys or whatever it is. They like the idea. They want to work for Octagon or Nike. They're not qualified. This is where you can be different. This is where you can stand out. Make sure you have the qualifications for the role. Make sure you focus on what's in demand for the industry for the roles you want to fill. Make sure you update your resume so that it has the information that connects with this job opening and shows that you are qualified. This is how you cut through the noise. And it's important to really, really hammer in on this because it drives me insane. Okay, let's flip over to the employer side. I'm just getting a couple highlights here. 62% of the employers surveyed say their biggest concern, what they're worried about in this point moving forward into the future is a talent shortage and lack of quality candidates. This all ties in again, people. 62% of sports employers are saying there's not enough quality candidates out there. What do you think when you hear that? What do you out there aspiring sports worker think? I hope you think that screams out opportunity because you are more driven to get the qualifications that are needed. You are more driven to build your skill set, to be something that will stand out and that will belie this concept of there being a talent shortage. You have to hear that and say, 62% of employers are worried about a talent shortage? I'm right here, baby. Let's go. If I were you, I'd be fired up by that. And I would be studying job descriptions to figure out what skills are in demand. And I'd be making sure I had the knowledge that was cutting edge and on the cusp of what was needed in the marketplace. If you're not doing that and you're just sitting back waiting for magic to happen and you're just hoping that your graduate, your degree, your piece of paper will stand out enough for you and you'll get hired, it's not enough. Quality matters. Aligning with needs matter. Taking the time to customize your resume matters. And so does passion. Here it comes. Get ready for it. Here comes my segue from our awesome industry report to today's guest. Speaking of passion, Maddie Fowler is the assistant AD for annual giving at the University of Nebraska, a four-time team captain on Nebraska's softball team, 2015-16 Nebraska Female Student Athlete of the Year, and a 2016 first-team COSETA Academic All-American. Her tenure as a student athlete helped her grow as a leader, she became entrenched in what it means to be part of the Cornhusker community and also gained an amazing education by getting both her undergrad degree and MBA at Nebraska. She ventured out. She worked elsewhere after graduating, but Nebraska's athletic community was in her heart. She had the qualifications and the passion. She had both. People always say these cliche lines like, it's not what you know, but who you know. And I disagree. You need both. You need to know people and you need to know things. And when you combine those two things, you become unstoppable. And that's what's happening in Maddie's career right now. Also, spoiler alert, if you want to be an athletic director someday, you better listen closely because fundraising is a massive part of the job. If you show you can raise money for the athletic department, that is a pipeline to big time AD jobs. Maddie's an amazing interview. There's a lot for you to learn in here. So I'm going to shut up now and let you hear from Maddie Fowler Burkhart.
Hey, Maddie. How are you? Thanks for joining me on a Friday afternoon for this conversation. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Brian. I just came from watching our Husker Volleyball number one preseason team uh, won their opening game and then came back to my office to jump on this uh, interview. So excited Gosh, to be that's, here. That's got to be the fun of working in college athletics, right? You can kind of jump over, watch a game for a little bit, cheer it on. Like, that's got to be fun. Uh, they, they spoil us. We um, had our red-white scrimmage uh, to start the year off last weekend and they sold out a scrimmage we had eight thousand fans to watch us play ourselves so we're talking oh my about gosh. Practice, right? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we always talk about how, uh, you know, d- major Division One programs are like a massive business. I mean, it's, it really is its own, its own sports business. And there's a lot of interesting parts of that we can get into in this conversation since you've been at University of Nebraska Athletics for a while now. But let's start a, a little bit further back. Uh, you were a student athlete at Nebraska, a uh, very successful softball player. So four-time team captain. 2015-16 Nebraska Female Student Athlete of the Year. Pretty cool. Got to be proud of that one. That's on the refrigerator, I'm guessing. And a 2016 First Team Cosita Academic All-American. When you went through that, as you look back on it, what did being a student athlete and all that goes into that teach you about yourself? It's, I mean, I don't know, how much time do you have? Uh, I know, right? <laughs> That's a pretty big um, question to start with, right? It is so demanding of you as a student athlete. And it's hard to finish. It really is. I mean, I had an injury, so I went five years. And a story I always like to tell is that uh, my freshman year at Nebraska, one of my first weeks of practice, um, Coach Ravel, who's the softball coach in Nebraska, she's a Hall of Fame coach, has been there for 30 seasons. And she came up to me and she said, you know, Maddie, by the end of all of this, you're going to be a uh, academic All-American. And I'm like, what, what coach, what, yeah. what kind of pressure What's are you putting on me right now? <laughs> and Nebraska leads the nation in academic all Americans and um, Nebraska softball has the second most in division one for, for that program. Wow. And it took me five years to get it done. So I, I needed that extra year. I had a medical <laughs> retro year to kind of fulfill um, what, what she had, what she had predicted, but it just, there's so much that it takes out of you as a student athlete people, unless you've gone through it. Um, it really is a something you have to go back to the love of the game so much because there are just so many nights I spent crying myself to sleep because you're just like, the game is faster. I'm not competing as much as I, as I used to. It, it feels like I'm not in tune with my body just because there's so many demands. And so it just teaches you um, how, to, how to push through all of that because if you don't push through, you leave. You leave the game. And it's really you either go one way or the other because it, it just requires so much uh, resilience, so much discipline. Um, such a competitive edge because you have to find new ways to motivate yourself every single day because you're doing the same routine. So if you get bored easily, it's not for you because you got to do the exact same thing and practice the same skill every single day. Um, So it's, I I talk to donors all the time who say they love hiring student athletes because they have all of those different X factors and they know that they're not just going to quit when it gets hard. See, I love that because I have a lot of student athletes that we talk to as part of the show. And a lot of times they'll say, well, I can't intern like other people do, or I can't do these other things to gain experience. So my resume might not look as good. And I'm like, you have to lean into all those other things, the leadership, the discipline, the maturity, you know, all those things that make you special. And I I love hearing you say that a lot of employers and donors look to student athletes because I definitely feel the same way. Yeah. And I I agree that they have to lean into that. And I always tell them they've got to leverage the network because it is, if, if their resume is just in a pile, and it shows that they don't have any work experience, it is probably going to get tossed to the side. But chances are our network is big enough, our alumni association is big enough that we always say, we'll find somebody that they know. So 
We just need to get you in front of them because I think yeah. the student athletes are going to sell themselves when they're in the room. And a lot of entry level positions, what are we hiring for, right? Are we right. hiring for skill set? Are we hiring for fit? And mm-hmm. they're going to crush the fit. They're going to crush the personality. They're going to crush the work ethic. So yes. just, you got to get them in front of them. But it is, it's, that is a big factor that not having the work experience, it's, it is a full-time job. So you yep. do lose out a little bit. Sometimes it takes a couple of years to catch up. Yeah, it takes the right employer some time to see yes. the potential. And we've said it a lot with military veterans, same kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they served right away and they're coming back and they want to get into their post-career and they're, and, they're, and they're looking at it and saying, I don't have the same resume as somebody else. Well, you need those right employers that can say, but I see the value in what you do yes. have. And sometimes it's all, like you said, just getting them in front of it. But let's talk about, you, you mentioned a lot of soft skills in there. You being a four-time team captain, that really speaks to your leadership as you kind of look through your period of time. I mean, nobody really knows how to be a leader when they first start out. And you kind of grow into that role, I'd imagine. How do you look at your progression as a leader yeah. during that time as well? Yeah, I, I love that question. That's it's probably my proudest accomplishment. Um, something that, um, again, I, it was I was there for five years, so I became a, a captain as a sophomore, and then um, had that bonus year for a medical redshirt year. Uh, but when when I was named a captain that year, we had a really young team, so we had a ton of underclassmen, and but they were a huge base of our starters, and so. Um, my coach knew that we needed those young ones to come along. So she kind of took a split approach where she named a senior a captain and then she named me as a sophomore a captain because she said, I need you to bring them along and make sure that they're not left behind because as a senior, I was this way. You're kind of like, let's go. Like, I know I've been through this before. Catch up. Keep up. What what don't you understand? Um, (laughs) What what really transferred for me is that – it's kind of an awkward thing at first because you know you're named a captain and you're a lot younger than the, most of the team and you feel like you're trying to find your voice. But, you know, seniors are like, what, what do I need to listen to you for? And it translates to the workplace because if you are somebody who's accelerating quickly in your career, you're probably going to be a leader of people who are older than you and they've been there longer than you. And that's a very um, relatable situation. So there were some skills that really translated there. Um, for me, uh, the year I was injured and had to sit out was probably the biggest year I saw leadership growth because I had to find a way to have a voice off the field. And where I was so used to just leading by example, um, I couldn't do that anymore because yeah. I was on crutches. <laughs> so yeah. I had to find a way to make myself you know, a resource and find different ways to tap in and pick a different kid each game to say, I'm going to be in your corner. Here's what I, here's what I see. Here's what I can help you with. I'm here for you. You know, what do you need? Um, so that year was really huge for me as well. And then um, when I got to my last year, it was, it was so fun for me just to see those freshmen, to see the next generation of leaders and kind of bring them along and pass the torch and know that the program was in good hands. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that maturation as a leader because I think about it when I, early in my career, I became a news director of, you know, managing 35 people when I'm like 28 years old. Yeah. And I was not ready for it. But by the time you started to do things and learn what worked and learn what didn't, you just keep growing as a leader. It's like nobody really knows how to do it out of the box, right? Yeah. Nobody's an expert at this. So you just keep kind of growing and try to make advancements. Yeah. And I, I think it takes a good boss or a good coach to see that potential in you and to kind of push you yeah. a little bit, right? To say, I know you might not think you're ready, but I know you're ready. So let's go for it and you'll figure it out along the way. Figure and it that's, out, right? That's yeah. how a lot of, of work goes, right? You just yep. get put in positions. I've never done this work before, but I can think on my feet and I'll figure it out as I go. Yep. yep. So I, I love this stat. It's one that I pulled the other day and I just it just blew me away. Big picture kind of thing. 
95% of Fortune 500 CEOs are former athletes, college athletes. 94% of C-level female executives, former athletes. 72% of U.S. presidents over the last 100 years, former athletes. I know we talked about a lot of those soft skills and discipline and things like that, but in your view, capsulate this for us. Why does being an athlete really directly translate to, to career success in your mind? Yeah, I, I think what I just said is to, to master any skill, right, you have to be able to do the same thing again and again and again and not burn out, not get bored, not run away when it gets tough. And athletes, you are just thrown to that fire. And there's just a different type of pressure um, that comes when you are playing and you're performing and you have a scholarship because it depends on how well you're performing. And that is just something that can play mind games with you. And it's it's just the good ones. You just rise above it. And I mean, there, I just look back at myself and how many times I just felt like I was just drowning in it and just, you know, trying to juggle it all. But then once I stepped out of college athletics and I went and worked my first full-time job, I was like, this is it, 40 hours yeah. a week. And I get to go home on the weekend and I don't have responsibilities. Like, this seems like a piece of cake. This uh, is amazing. It, yes. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it, I went from waking up at 6 a.m. and turning out the lights at 10 p.m. And there was not 15 minutes of my day that was not scheduled out. Right. And then I was, when we were traveling, we were leaving on Thursdays. We were getting back Sunday at 3 a.m., which is actually Monday morning. And I had class at 8.30. Yeah. We did that for week after week after week. So when you take that kind of dedication, that kind of time management, um, and just that kind of passion for something, and you can roll that those skills into the workplace, I think it really makes uh, a 40-hour work week seem like something that is a piece of cake, but it also this, makes yeah. you push through, right? You just, you don't get bored. You don't burn out as much, I think. And uh, I, and then the leadership, which is what you talked about um, with those C-suite executives and presidents, is that there's just some leadership that you can really only find, I think, on the sports field. Um, yeah. It brings out uh, so many things out of you. You see such an interesting group of personalities. That's one thing as a captain you always had to figure out was how to manage personalities because everybody is motivated different. Everybody takes criticism different. Um, so you can't treat every teammate the same. Um, some people you can get hard on and say, you're better than this. And they're like, you're right. Let me step up. Um, yep. Some that they'll shut down. So you yes. learn that really fast on the field. So I think it just, it's such a microcosm for the bigger world that you just, it brings out all of these different scenarios so fast and you learn so much in such a, you know, such a small period of time. <laughs> you're doing it for four or five straight years for literally 12 hours a day. So it, there's a lot that can come out in that. I love that point about repetition too, like doing the same things over and over again towards perfection. And that, that, that gets you past boredom or other things like that. Like you, you know that you need that discipline in order to be at that, at your best. I think that's a, a really interesting layer there that I hadn't really considered before. So that's really cool. So you finish playing days, you get your undergrad degree in business and finance, and then you spend a year outside of sports. What was what was that like? Because there was a little bit of time before you came back to University of Nebraska in the athletic mm -hmm. department where you were out. Was it was it like, oh my gosh, this is this is not what I want? Was it really clear or or what was that like? Yeah, people always ask, like, what's the number one thing you miss like when you finish playing? And I'm like, honestly, eating dinner with my teammates, because all of a yeah. sudden I had no one to eat dinner with, and you don't realize how lonely <laughs> that can be. Which it sounds uh, yeah. silly, but it's so true. Like you're yeah. so used to You've it's got a squad. It's like, a, it's, it's like a, a squad. Your yeah. team can't be uh, oh. underestimated the impact of that connectivity. Yeah. So it was, um, 
I did my first year of grad school while I was still playing. Um, and then, so I had one more year of grad school. So I was finishing that up. Um, I was working in internship in Omaha, which is just an hour from Lincoln. Um, but even just moving an hour away, I was like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? What am I connected with? You know, what am I outside of this sport? You know, there's so yeah. much, you just feel like there's name recognition and there's, there's so much pride that comes when you are a student athlete and when you don't kind of have that anymore. So Honestly, this is kind of selfish, but I, I missed that a lot. I liked, yeah. I liked that. I liked being in the know. I liked being. That's not selfish. You know, That's awesome. Sports. Yeah, <laughs> and so that was something I recognized. So yeah, if you look at if you look at my resume, you know, I never did any sports administration. A lot of people in this business, you know, get a master's in sports um, admin. I didn't do that. I got an MBA because I thought I was going to go um, the private finance yeah. or corporate finance side, um, and I just I missed it and. I, I got really lucky. I'll be completely honest. I got really lucky because um, the AD kind of pulled me back in. So he, I had gotten to know him really well. So it's one of those things where you network early and it comes back and somebody somebody Preach. saves you and pulls you back. Um, so I was I was very involved with administration as a student athlete. Was the SAC president, the student athlete advisory committee. So I got to know them really well, and they had a job opening. And so he had said, you know, I think you'd be good for this job. That doesn't mean it's yours, but I think you should come interview it for it. And if he hadn't pulled me back in, I, I might have just gone and done banking and really missed out on what I feel like I was meant to do and what I think I have a blast doing every day. So I give myself credit because I got to build those relationships and that took work that set me up. But then I got lucky because somebody created that opportunity and, and thought of me and pulled me back in, which I think you when you work hard, you create luck. Okay, audience, listeners, I want you all to really make sure you heard that part because when you are... I'm speaking to the audience here for a second. When you are a student athlete, you have an advantage that other undergrads may not. And that is being able to talk to the AD. That is being able to network and grow those relationships and learn what the marketing department does and see what the sales team does or whatever. And you got to leverage that. So if you're a student athlete, if I'm just a normal undergrad, I can't go in and just talk to the AD. But you could, and you did it. And that led to great things. So again, as a student athlete, you have to make sure you take advantage of what you do have rather than focusing on what you might not. So anyway, back yeah. to our conversation. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but if you're, if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm not a student athlete, how am I ever supposed to get in? It's, it's still about creating those opportunities. We, we hire so many of our student workers, so many That's across great. the athletic department of kids who just put in the time working 20 hours a week when they were in school. And we also hire student workers five years later. They leave, yeah. they go work somewhere else. They go and they work in professional sports and mm -hmm. then they want to come back home. And we love hiring those proven commodity. Yep. Yes, proven commodity. We know they have a love for Nebraska and they come on back. So there are other ways if you're obviously not a student athlete, but I think the bigger story is just when you networking is not an instant result. It's something that can come years later. Thank you. Yes. It is not just add water. It doesn't happen mm -hmm. right away. You got to work at it. It's relationship mm -hmm. building. Uh, great point. Thank you for making that distinction. Okay, so your role when you come back is on the development side. Yes. For a lot of the listeners out there, they might not even know what that is. So why don't you just take us through yeah. what that means to be working in development for a D1 or any actual college uh, athletic program? Yep. So, I mean, bottom line is it's fundraising. So we are raising money for all of our sports pro programs, for scholarships, um, for capital projects. Uh, endowments, anything that kind of touches the student-athlete experience is what we really focus on. Um, so when you donate to the University of Nebraska Athletic Department, it can be a 
complete a tax write-off. So we have people who are giving us money because, you know, they're getting a taxable benefit, but really it's more so about they are so passionate about the University of Nebraska and our athletic department that they want to do what they can to help us move along and have, and give us a competitive advantage. So we have over 17,000 donors. So we are obviously not working with every single one of them because that would be impossible, but we are building relationships with key um, donors in that population to, to keep them um, engaged, to give them access so that they want to keep renewing, that they can grow how much they give to support our programs. Um, we're working with premium seed holders, so our suites, um, our club seats, you know, those are kind of some of our, our core base of support. And then we're trying to find new people who can be the next generation of givers because we have some really, really solid base of, of donors, but we got to find that next generation. So we're current, we're constantly prospecting, um, trying to find people. When you go meet with somebody, you say, hey, what are two or three people that you know who I should be talking to? Who should I be in front of? Um, and they will give you names. Oh, there's this guy who's in our bank, and uh, he's a huge Husker fan. If he's not already donating, he needs to be. Here's his name. Yeah. Um, you, you'll be surprised what people will give you. So um, bottom line is, is we fundraise, we raise money, so that um, we can invest in our student athletes and give them the best resources so they can be successful while they're here at Nebraska and be successful when they're done. So it sounds like to me, there'd be a lot of need for marketing skills and sales skills, both because you're probably putting on some donor events, you're probably doing yes. some special things there. And then also, you know, you're talking about prospecting and things. How did you get familiar with these skills. I mean, you have your yep. MBA, you did business administration, and that teaches you a lot, I'm sure. But mm -hmm. is this a learn on the job type thing? Or did you feel like you were kind of prepared and ready for it? it it's definitely a learn on the job. I mean, it's not a, it's, you probably have the stat of how many people don't do what they, what they got a major in, right? They don't oh, yeah, that's a doing lot. that kind of job. You know, it's My wife was like an art major and now she's like a CMO. I mean, like whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, when we're hiring, it's, the number one thing is is communication skills, um, your confidence in front of people, ability to have conversations. Because if you can't do that, you can't do this job. You have to enjoy talking to people. And I mean, there are hard conversations. We have probably more hard conversations than fun conversations because nobody's ever calling just to say, hey, I had a great time last night. Thanks so much. They're usually calling because something went wrong or they want something else um, or there's a problem. You need to fix it. So you've got to be able to adapt there. But when, when you start in this job in development, you probably aren't going to jump in in the first position asking for major gifts. You're going to start by, you know, putting together donor profiles, by running lists, by putting reports together, planning small events, you know, stocking the suites on the Friday before games. I mean, there's some really unglamorous tasks, but you've got to be willing to put in that work to get to the point and also to feel comfortable because asking somebody for a major gift is it's, it's a difficult thing to do because you're going to get turned down a lot as well. And uh, I mean, just think about it. it. It's hard enough sometimes to ask your parents for money. Imagine asking right. somebody else's parent for money. It's tough. Did it feel like a fit for you right away when you started to get into it? It did. And I, I think it was, it was a great fit for me because since I played here, it was, I was so bought in. Right. So when I would meet with the donor, I could say, this is exactly what the experience did for me. This, mm -hmm. These are the things that got me, who was a kid from Arizona. This is why I came to Nebraska was because of all of these different resources. That's what sold me to come here. And that's why I stayed. I mean, I didn't move back to Arizona. I stayed put in Nebraska. And these are the reasons why. So when I can sit there and have that honest conversation, nobody wants to hear you blow smoke. 
So you've got to be really honest. And, um, and I was able to do that really fast because it was just natural. And that was, that was the experience I had. Now we have on our team of 12 people, three of us are former Nebraska athletes, nine are not. So you do not have to be a former okay. athlete to be successful in this. It's just my approach. Cause that's what works for me. But for other people, they have other approaches that works for them. So you just kind of, kind of got to run with um, what can make you successful and open doors for you. You've grown really quickly. You're development director initially, then to senior director, and then recently, about, within the last year, assistant AD for annual giving. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, how much has the role changed as you've gone up? Uh, have your responsibilities and your, you know, st- management side, are you out of the day-to-day flow as much? Like, how does it kind of change as you go up that ladder a little bit? And and mm-hmm. ultimate goal, see yourself in the AD desk someday? I always say I'd like to put myself in position to do that. You know, you, you don't ever know, I think, until you get there, if you're going to like it. I One of our associate head coaches for the Nebraska softball program she, I love what she says is she said she took a head coaching job one time and she realized it wasn't for her that she made a really, really good. And she was happier as the associate head coach. So she stepped back into that role. So that's what I always say is I'd like to put myself in a position to be there one day to make that decision and maybe get the, get the call and then figure out if that's really what you want to do. Cause I think too many people sometimes take a role that takes them out of what they really love to do. It's almost like you can go a little too high and then you don't, love what you yeah. do anymore. So I want to make sure I always really love what I do. So if, if it works out and the stars align, sure. <laughs> I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> That's my answer today. Um, but back to your original question, uh, the biggest probably change in my responsibilities was having a portfolio. So did not have a portfolio of major gift donors when I started and now have a portfolio of folks that I'm working with on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, work moving into managing employees and supervising um, and, and how I kind of got there in, in the five years I've been here is I always was the first to raise my hand when, um, when people left, when they, we had natural attrition and, and a role, something needed to be picked up. All right. Our suite director left. Who's going to, who's going to take over and run the suites. Sometimes nobody even had that conversation and I would just do it. I said, I'll do it. I, I can figure this out. And so you got to be careful sometimes because I almost absorbed a little too much for a while yeah. there. So if you if you put your hand in too much, you got to be able to get out of it at some point as well. And um, <laughs> figuring out how to do that is tough as well. But that was that was what worked for me is that I was always observing and anticipating really well of what needed to be done. And when I saw that there was a hole, I was always wanted to be the one to fill that hole. I've always kind of mentioned it, and I know it's a kind of a generalization, but I've always kind of said it like having a walk-on attitude. So like a, a walk-on player to a team that doesn't have a scholarship and has to battle for everything is a, a little bit different possibly than that five-star recruit that's always yeah. been somewhat catered to. And I, I know that's not across the board, but just having that mentality of that attitude of like, if there's a challenge, I'm going to take it on because I got to earn everything I've got. And that those are the people that I see grow quickly in mm-hmm. any facet of the sports industry. Sometimes it just comes down to that attitude. I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear. I've talked to a lot of ADs and asked what is that training ground to become an AD? And they'll talk about fundraising. They'll talk about development because literally the job of an AD is to keep the program afloat. It's not just hiring the head coaches or whatever. It's it's structuring and building up the, the revenue portfolio. If I asked you that same question of kind of what are those attributes or somebody comes to you and says, I want to be a Power 5 AD sometime, what would you kind of suggest to them as being 
those things that they should work on to kind of be as as marketable as possible for a role like that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right because when we go talk to these CEOs of major companies, right, they want to have a CEO to CEO conversation. So if you're making a multi-million dollar ask, which people on our team are doing, you know, a lot of times that needs to come from the AD, right? They want yeah. to hear from the head person in charge to say, okay, why do you need this? And what are you going to do with the support? So um, an AD has to be very comfortable doing that as well, even if they didn't have that development background. But I also think development, we have to know everything. Because um, when we go talk to these donors, right, they want to know about, they follow recruiting so well. So I have to be up to date on 247 and what the recruiting <laughs> recruiting's going on. I have to know what academics is doing. I have to know what our life skills program is about. I have to know all of the answers to ticketing because they want to ask me, hey, I can't download my mobile tickets. Can you fix this for me? And if I can't do it and I have to go find somebody else, it's so much easier if I can do that. And that builds trust with them. So you have to be willing to kind of learn the whole picture of college athletics and, you know, know all of the sports. You have to know the right people. Relationships with the coaches stuff. too, I would mm-hmm. imagine. Oh, huge. Relationships with coaches is huge because if I can get them in front of a coach or if, um, you know, I can just have the coach walk by their seat and say, how's it going tonight, Tom? You know, that's game over. That opens up Do a work. lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just yes. throw more cash I mean, at you. Just, so you, you've got to learn everything in the athletic department and just be knowledgeable. And for us, I mean, that's listening to our radio show. That's reading D1 ticker all the time. That's mm-hmm. us listening to all of our coaches press conferences. Cause I can't tell you how many times I sit down in a donor's office or I'm talking to them on the phone and they just want to ask me, well, what happened with that volleyball recruit? Why didn't, why didn't they end up yeah. coming here? I mean, that's what they want. To know. They want the inside behind the scenes kind of knowledge and they you're do. their source. Now, you can't always give them all the insights, so right. that's a very fine line to walk because it is very easy to have, be privy to some knowledge and want to be the one to be like, ooh, I have the scoop, let me tell you, but that's not appropriate. Uh, yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, you work for the athletic department, you protect our student-athletes, and we protect our staff, but it is, I mean, you just... You dabble on that line because you're like, I want to be, I want to give you the scoop. That'll, you have that'll to have that PR trust. media relations yes. point of view as well. Yeah. But you can't BS. I mean, anybody can see through that. These are very successful people. They can read through BS. So if, if I know something's not going well, I'm not going to expand on it, but I'm not going to act like it's all sunshine either. I'm going to say, right. you know, it's, it's not in a great spot. We're working on it. Um, I'll let you know once, once we have a better answer, because they're going to read right through that. And that's not going to help your relationship. What a fun challenge to be able to, to manage that kind of conversation yeah. pattern and, and wants and desires and what you can give and can't give. Yeah. I mean, gosh, it's got to be kind of crazy. On that, on that thought process or that thought exercise of athletic directors, currently only five out of 65 Power 5 ADs are women. In 2021, 17, I'm looking at my notes, 17 D1 AD jobs opened and only two were filled by women. How does that make you feel when you hear that? It makes me feel like there's work to do. So, I mean, if we if we look at that, right, two out of 17, that's a little more than 10%. I'm so glad you did the math. I what, was going to struggle. <laughs> what I always look <laughs> at is you've got to have a feeder program, right? It's like in Major League Baseball. You have the majors and you have the minors. And if you don't have great people in the minors for your program, where are you pulling from? So if we're looking at a little over 10% of the open jobs went to females last year. And if you look at all of the senior staffs, the administration people who sit in the room, right, with the AD, if only 10% are women in that room, well, then the numbers probably line up. And if you go one step back and all of your associate ADs, if only 10% of women are there, and I would say probably a lot of schools, those are the numbers. 
then it's not going to change. So it, it kind of starts with you've got to train and recruit, you know, women early because you've got it. You can't just pull somebody who doesn't have the experience. They're pulling, you know, senior associate ADs, executive associate ADs, deputy ADs. And if there's not a massive pool of women there, you've got to start at square one. So we have come a long way. I mean, five is a lot more than zero, which is what it yep. used to be. But there's still a lot of a lot of growth there. Um, it makes me feel like I'm in the right business because it's something I, I want to do. I, I don't think it's something I can't do just because there are five. But I also think, you know, for women, I, I think there's this mindset a lot of times, too, that there's only one seat at the table. And we've got to pull in pull, keep the door open and keep pulling more women in with us because there's got to be more seats at the table than just the one designated SWA spot by the NCAA. It is really interesting to conceive it that way then too, is that this is a a long-term fix, that this is going to take time and that, yes, progress is being made, but to really start to see those numbers shift, you have to fill in behind and grow from within. And that's that's an interesting point on it. before we went on the air, you and I talked a little bit about, uh, I mentioned that Gloria Navarez, West Coast Commissioner, um, was has been on the show before. And in the last year, they've they've launched the, the Russell Rule, which is kind of the Rooney Rule, but put mm-hmm. in college sports. What's your take? Would you like to see more policies that help elevate and and give opportunity to? Or is this something that that just needs to start to, to grow and change organically? Yeah, it, it's a really tough question because it's hard to know, right, if that's just getting them an interview, but not actually elevating. Um, so it's hard to know. I, I'd be interested yeah. to see what the results are, honestly, to see if it, to see if it works. But for me, it's really just more about, you know, recruiting people at the entry level jobs and then creating paths to move up. And we talk about this a lot too, is that it's, it's easy to look to, for female to female mentorship, but if, if females aren't at the top, you've got to have some male mentorship as well, because they're the ones who are going to pull you up. So all the times I've been promoted, it's been a man promoting me and it's been me getting mentorship from my boss. Um, so I can't just depend on female to female mentorship. So to me, it, it's hard to know if that kind of policy is going to be the difference. I think it comes down to who the hiring you know, committees are, if they're able to have an open mindset and look at all the qualified candidates without looking at just who's done it before, because that's a tough thing too. If you only have five females who are currently power five ADs and your number one criteria is they have to be a sitting power five AD to become the AD, five is never going to change. You're just going to recycle the same few and they're going to move around. So that's kind of, that's kind of one of the bigger problems I think is you've got to look at your criteria and it's never going to change if that's the, if that is the criteria. And that's, if you look at most of the jobs, that's, that's what it is going to be. It's so smart. I mean, that's what we were talking about at the beginning too, with having the right employers that can look at student athletes, that can look at veterans, can mm-hmm. look at different people and see the potential and the opportunity. It's the same kind of thing here. It's like, you have to have those right decision makers who are saying, no, this is, this is the direction we want to go. This is what is important to us. And this is where we want to get better. So it's interesting to see how this, I, I think all of us, a lot of yeah. us are just hoping for more progress and more equity out there. You're very involved in mentoring programs. You mentioned a little bit there of peer-to-peer mentorship, but you're also a very active in mentorship and groups that support women in sports. Do you feel like that younger generation is starting to feel that narrative of I can do anything and that anything is within my reach and they can see the role models and they can see the blueprints mm-hmm. and they can go after it? Or is there still that kind of impression of like that, that opportunity is not there for me? 
I, I think it's it's all out there. You know, there's been enough coverage of it. Media is doing a really good job of kind of lifting up a lot of these stories. And, um, you know, it's that old saying, like, you have to see it to be it. It's so true. Yep. You can't dream or have this idea about doing a job unless you've seen somebody else do that job. Because if not, you don't even know that's an example. So for me, that was Pat Logston, who was, you know, an executive associate AD at Nebraska. She was the first female director of operations for a power five football program ever. Um, and that's where she started. And then she became, you know, our deputy AD at her. She just retired this past year. So when I was a student athlete, that was what I saw, right? She was Pat. Yeah. She was the force, the female force on our leadership staff. And I needed to see that to know that this was a job that maybe I could do. This is something that maybe there was space for me. So I think there are enough people out there who are creating those spaces that you can see that and be inspired. Um, but we, we still need more. Um, the mentorship programs really help. As I was saying earlier, you, you can't just lean on female to female mentorship, though, because you really need men as well to be the ones who are going to sponsor you through. Um, I've, I've part of some of the programs I've been a part of have really talked about the difference between mentorship and sponsorship and sponsorship is really when somebody's going to say your name in that room that, Hey, there's this project. Maddie would be good for that project. Or if there's a new job opening, I think Maddie would be able to do this. That's the difference between sponsorship and just somebody who's kind of helping develop your soft skills, as you mentioned earlier. So I think the programs, I mean, I'm, I'm in, Women Leaders in College Sports, it's a phenomenal program. And that's been really good for, for networking. It's been really good just to tell you to keep going. Because I mean, that's that's a big part of it, too, is just you've got to keep going. And there are times when you want to get out. Um, and then it's been really good, too, to just to encourage you. There are things that women do differently than men. Um, one of the stats is like a woman will see a, a job posting and I only fulfill, you know, six of the 10 requirements and then they don't apply. Yeah. A man sees, I fulfill three of 10. That's good Two, enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm applying. Sure. Going for it. Yeah. So there are things like that that a lot of these programs have taught us and encouraged us. You got to go for it, right? Or pushing you along because you do sometimes need somebody to push you to take that next step. Um, but it, you can't just stop there, you know, but it's, it is, I, I'm, I'm both a mentee and a mentor, you know, through some of these programs. So it's, there's a younger generation, even though I feel like I'm still pretty young, but, and then there's people who are older than me who are also doing that for me. So it, it is a very full circle um, program. There's a lot of great opportunities out there. We do that for our student athletes here in Nebraska. Um, we have a mentoring program there um, where we have people who are, you know, in medicine and journalism, connecting them with student athletes to try and sh- teach them, give them somebody um, to look up to and to help get their foot in the door. So it is really important. And it's more than anything, it's, it's a support group. I'm so glad you mentioned that about kind of skills identification. I speak in college classrooms all across the country. And one of the things we I do in my sessions is I walk them through how to understand like a job description or a job ad and like what, what they're looking for and what you need to have. And then I share with them the data that you just said. Women will look at this and say, I have eight out of the 10 things they're looking for. I'm not a match. Men will see two and be like, good enough. I could be GM of the Yankees, you know? And I'm like, you're both wrong. Like, you're both wrong. So if you have 60% of the skills they're looking for, good enough. You're in the consideration set. Go. And that that sometimes just breaking down those mental barriers Mm -hmm. can be so important because they're out there and there is this perfectionism that a lot of women think I need to be 10x better than the men. And it's... It's not that way anymore. It may have been before. It definitely was. But but it's 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 getting better. And I feel that out there too from an employment standpoint. But I'm glad you 
you reiterated that as well. Yeah. My dad um, was clean. He retired a few years ago. And when he was cleaning out his office, he found this book that somebody had given to him in like the nineties when he had his first female boss and it was a real book and I have it at home and it's, the book was titled how to work for a woman boss. Oh my gosh. It was, it's the funniest book I've ever seen. And he was like, somebody actually gave this to me because they thought it would be helpful the first time I had to work for a woman. So we have come a long way. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just a really, really funny thing. So I, I kept that book because it's it's pretty comical. And I hope one day that's not even a concept. Yeah. I started my career in 1996. So in this era of, of that book, uh, I started my career in 1996 at CNN Sports Illustrated. 24-hour sports news network, two of the biggest names in the media. It was amazingly diverse, our staff. And my boss was Sandy Malcolm, who's still one of my absolute mentors in this industry. And I, none of us ever even thought of it. We all had a job mm -hmm. to do. We all worked really well together. And it was like, it didn't really come up. So yeah. I really, truly believe for the longest time in the early part of my career, I thought the sports industry was different than everywhere yeah. else and that it was more diverse and it was more equitable and there were more women working. And then it was just, it became clearer to me further as I got in my career, there was a bigger problem than I even recognized and it still is. So it's just, it's like, you got to see it sometimes to understand it too. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I always say to people too is, um, I love it. And we're like this at Nebraska. If you look at our sport administration is that we don't just have women who are sport administrators for female sports, right? We are SWA is the sport administrator for men's basketball. And I, I don't ever want, I, I love that setup because nobody ever thinks twice when, you know, one of the men, one of the male administrators is the sport administrator for yeah. the volleyball team or the softball team. But for some reason right. you think about it the other way when it's flipped. So I, I loved that when um, our AD Trev Alberts, when he was setting up that job description that, put in there this job will be the administrator of volleyball and men's basketball and I think that's huge because that that totally rips down those barriers as well and just that kind of conception people have in their head that you can only be you know for for the female sports no we a student athlete is a student athlete and if you can manage one set of athletes you can manage another set of athletes that top level leadership matters and those decisions matter a lot. So that's really cool to hear. Maddie, thank you so much for coming on. This was really enlightening. I know our audience is really going to love it. And congrats to all your success and growth. Thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. It's been fun. Thank you so much to Maddie for coming on the show. I cannot stress this enough. I get asked a lot from people that are like, I want to work in college athletics. I want to be an athletic director. How do I do it? This is the pipeline. Fundraising, development, working with big donors, working with the big businesses in the area, working directly with CEOs to fund programs. This is how it happens. When you can prove a track record of generating revenue for an athletic program that stands out to schools looking for athletic directors, it's not just about hiring head coaches. A lot of it is in the structural fundraising for an athletic department. Listen to Maddie, go back and pick up on those things because she is going to be a Power 5 AD in the next five years. I'm telling you, put it here right now. Hopefully I can get her back on the show when she does it. Thank you for listening, everybody. Such a great pleasure to have you in the audience. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, all those things. I'm serious, reviewing, saying something nice, clicking that five star, all that kind of stuff, it does help. And if you subscribe, that helps. If you share with a friend, that helps. We are always looking to grow and you are an important part of that. So please continue to do those things. I'm not just saying it every week. I want you to do it. Please take action. 
helps us a lot, which helps you because I can keep doing this and getting better guests, better and better and better. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks.